Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 722 with Lou Adler. Lou has decades of experience recruiting, and he has got some pro tips for you. Whether you're hiring or trying to get hired, he's got the perspectives that can make a boatload of difference. You'll learn, one, what's wrong with most job descriptions, two, the real 30% increase job seekers ought to seek, and three, why you shouldn't apply for a job directly. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at Awesome at Your Job dot com slash ep722 and if you had also met your job.com check out some cool stuff like our gold nugget email summaries the full text transcripts of every episode that are searchable every episode tagged by topic and competency covered a lot of good stuff at awesome at your job.com to take your learning to new heights now here's Lou's story. Lou is the CEO and founder of the Adler Group, a consulting and training firm that helps companies implement win-win hiring programs using his performance-based hiring system for finding and hiring exceptional talent. More than 40,000 recruiters and hiring managers have attended his groundbreaking workshops over the past 20 years. Lou's the author of the Amazon Top 10 bestseller, Hire With Your Head, and The Essential Guide to Hiring and Getting Hired. Lou has been featured on Fox News, and his articles and posts can be found in Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, Bloomberg, and The Wall Street Journal. Before he was doing executive search, he held senior operations and financial management positions at the Allen Group and at Rockwell International's Automotive and Consumer Electronics Groups. He holds an MBA from UCLA and a BS in engineering from Clarkson University. Big thanks to Lou for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Lou. Lou, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, happy to be here, Pete, and thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so excited to get your wisdom on both sides of the hiring table, the the hiring and the getting hired. And I have a feeling that in your work over the years, you've probably encountered some interesting stories, anything particularly memorable or fun or touching or hilarious that leaps to mind as you reflect on your career here. Well, I don't know if it would be fun or hilarious, but important is probably a dozen. But since you've only asked me that question 15 seconds ago, I have to scramble pretty quickly. But I do remember one, and it was 30 years ago or so, maybe even longer. Uh, I was talking with a candidate, and I was a recruiter at the time. My background has been uh, diverse, but certainly when I was a recruiter in an early days, I thought I was going to place this one candidate who was a remarkable person, 
into a job as a plant manager. And at the time, I was a contingency recruiter, and I would got a full fee. And the compensation, today's dollars, would have been 150 to 200000 So if you multiply 30% by that, that was the fee I would have gotten. So not insignificant fee. So I just listened to him say, John, and I was devastated, literally devastated. I mean, you lose that money. I didn't have it, but I lost it anyway because I already, in my mind, spent it. I said, why are you taking the other offer? And he listed his whole list of five or six, seven reasons why. And then this is this is the important part. As I listened to it and I regained my composure, I said, John, you've just made a long-term career decision using short-term information. Mm-hmm. And what are you talking about? I said, John, everything you just said, the compensation, the title, the location, has to do with what you get on the start date. Not one thing did you say is what you're going to be doing and becoming as a result of taking that job. We're talking about a 15-minute drive each way. So we're talking about a half hour. You're talking about a slightly better title. You're talking about a slightly more money. But the big thing you're missing is you're working in a company that's going downhill that's in an old state electronics versus new state-of-the-art making displays. So what you do in the next two to three years will affect the rest of your life. And if you take that offer, admittedly, it's a little bit more money, slightly better title, VP manufacturing instead of plant manager, but you're putting yourself on a career death trap. I might not have used those specific terms. Then I said, John, did you already accept the offer? And he said, no, but I want to call you first because I told you I was going to do it and I feel badly that I'm not going to take the offer. I said, well, why don't you think about it before you call the other company up? And I thought at that time that I might have convinced him to at least think about it, but I didn't think I was going to get the offer. So I was pretty devastated. He calls me up the next morning and says, Lou, I'm going to take your offer. There you go. He said, everything you said is 100% true. Working in online manufacturing means two to three years from now, I'll never get any better than this. He took the offer. Nine months later, he called and said, Lou, I've just been promoted to VP operations for six plants, both in the United States and we're now building in China, which was when the big Chinese movement took place. And everything is, uh, was absolutely the right decision. And I still remember those words today. This is nine months later when he said, you're making a long-term decision using short-term data. And to me, that's an important lesson that I tell all candidates. It's in all the books I write. Is too many candidates hire for what they get on the start date or accept jobs for what they get on the start date, not the work they're going to be doing and what they could become if they're successful. So to me, that's the epitome of everything I train, I advocate, and I listen for. And I actually ask candidates, why'd you take job A and go to job B? Why'd you go from job B to job C? And, and they always say, well, they promised me this, they promised me that. I said, no, they don't promise you. You have to get, you have to do the due diligence yourself to get that information. And if you don't get it, you're making a long-term decision using superficial information. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I love it. And that's very easy to overlook in terms of you see what's right in front of you, you know, and, and it feels pretty, pretty close, pretty visceral, pretty emotional. It's like, this is my livelihood. This is my experience of work. This is what's going to happen when I get in a car on Monday morning. Uh, this is what I'm going to see on my business card. This is what I'm going to see in, in the, the checks or direct deposits that appear in my bank. So yes, it, it, that makes a lot of sense that we can naturally fall into some short-term, right in front of you, myopic thinking. And uh, we need someone like Lou to, uh, to point us into the, the long-term. Very One cool. thing I, as part of my late, recent, most recent book, which is called Hire With Your Head, I, the theme of the book is called Win-Win Hiring. 
And it's the idea that hiring managers, recruiters, and candidates alike should think about success measured on the first year anniversary date, not the start date. Hiring success means, hey, the candidate on the anniversary date says, well, I'm glad I took this job and I'm still glad I have it. And hiring manager says, I'm glad I hired that person. Achieving that win-win hiring outcome is hard to do, but critical to do regardless of whether you're the recruiter, hiring manager, or the candidate accepting that offer or not. And I and very few people do it, but that's the essence of what I've been advocating and what I've been teaching. Mm-hmm. That's called win-win hiring and achieving those kinds of outcomes. Well, yeah, that's a great perspective. Win-win hiring, one year. Well, so tell us, Lou, what are some of the the core principles that make that the case? That one year later, folks say, yeah, really, I'm glad I hired that person and or. Yeah, so now I'll give you another story. Now, my history is I didn't start being a recruiter, but I became a recruiter before just about 99% of the people listening to your podcast were born. It was 1978. And I remember my first search assignment was, again, a lot of work I had done with in manufacturing was for a company in the automotive industry. And I knew the president. And I knew that when I became a recruiter, this was going to be my first assignment. So I met him the second or third day as a recruiter. And Mike was the president of this company in Southern California. And he said, I'm looking for someone with 10 years experience, has a degree in engineering, probably be great at that person at MBA and uh, results oriented and good community and all the stuff that you always see on job descriptions. And I looked at a job description. I said, Mike, this is not a job description. This is a person description. A job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A person has that. Let's talk about the job before we're about the person doing the job. And I said, let's put the job description or the person description in the parking lot. What do you want this person to do? What would this person need to do to be successful in the first year? And he said, turn around the plant. I said, fine, let's walk through the plant and figure out what that person needs to do. We spent an hour walking through the plant, labor performance issues, scrap issues, processing issues, layout issues, inventory management. It was, it was a crummy plant. I said, we'll find someone who can turn this plant around. I have never used a job description that defines uh, skills, experience, and competencies. It always defines the work as a series of performance objectives. Build a team to uh, put together an international reporting process within six months. Uh, make quota, design a new circuit that can accomplish A, B, and C and would fit within this kind of parameters and meets these kind of criteria. It's always outcomes. With the AI being, the idea being, if a person can accomplish that work, he or she is perfectly qualified. Uh What changes is the mix of skills and experiences. And I tell my clients, they obviously have to do the work. That's not compromising, but give us some relief on the skills and experiences. Having the skills and experience doesn't mean the person can do the work or motivate to do it. But if you can find someone who's competent and motivated to do that work, you've got the right person. You just open a talent pool to everybody who can do the work. Black, white, older, young, green or yellow, uh, physically challenged or not, doesn't matter. And I've talked to number one labor numbers of labor attorneys, but the number one labor attorney world, contends that's the most accurate way to hire. That's objective criteria. Well, yeah. And I was thinking that, you know, if in the unfortunate world that it it doesn't work out, you know, a year later, that, that, that feels pretty bulletproof in, in a courtroom. I'm no lawyer, but in terms of, hey, this is what they're hired to do. And it didn't happen. So we're looking for someone else who can do it. And as opposed to, they weren't people. Conversely, if you define that's what you're looking for, 
You just dig deep into can hey Pete, we need someone to turn around a plant. Tell me about the biggest turnaround operation you've ever been involved with and spend 20 minutes digging into understanding that. Hey, we got to build a team of accountants to put an international reporting system. Hey, we got to develop a new interface that accomplishes ABC using these skills. Walk me through anything you've done that's related to that. So a lot of it, so your question was, how do you create a win-win opportunity? Well, first you got to define the work that person has to do over the course of the year that would result at least from the hiring manager's perspective, a win-win hire. Then you got to find candidates who are motivated and competent to do that work and find it uh, the best career move of competing alternatives. All right. Well, well, I, I love it. Lou, you're just breaking it down the step by step. So let's hear about that next step in terms of how does one go about finding those folks once we've clearly defined what a win-win situation looks like? Well, that's a great question. You must have read the book. Now, seriously, the next step in, first define the jobs, a series of key performance objectives, then find candidates. So I call them semi-finalists. You don't need a lot of people to hire a great person. You just need the right people. So our high touch process is spend more time with fewer people as long as they're pre-qualified. And I was with a hiring manager last week. Uh, he was looking for a software developer to do some back-end stuff. It was pretty complicated. And I just said, what do you want this person to do, Henry? What do you, what do you want accomplished? And he told me a couple of tasks that were big. So I said, so if I can find someone who's done comparable work, won't compromise on that ability to be performance qualified. That's one step. And the candidate has been recognized for doing that work. And in the top half or top quartile or top third of the peer group or top 10%, would you at least talk to the person on the phone? He said, Absolutely. So part of sourcing is you look for who would a hiring manager want to talk with if they were could do that work and they were recognized for being exceptional at it. I said, even if the person had a different mix of skills and experience, hiring manager, I don't care. The only thing to do the work and motivate to do it, I want to see him. Then I said, but now we've got the other side is we're going to look for a discriminating candidate who would see that job as a career move. Mm-hmm. So then we look for, as we find candidates, we look for candidates who would see that job as a, a move, maybe going from a big company to a small company, working on better projects, someone whose slow, as growth is slowed down, go to a place where they, the growth is accelerating. So there's a lot of things you can do and there's a lot of technology to get you to find candidates. But you have to be kind of clever at it. But we look for performance qualified, meaning they can do the work, some super skills, Achiever terms, meaning they're in the top half, top third, top quarter of their peer group, and from the candidates facing decision, hey, the job's a clear career move. Then you engage in a conversation. Hey, Pete, would you be open to talk about a situation superior to what you're doing today? I tell recruiters, don't sell the job, sell the conversation. And see if, but if you're dealing with the right person, they'll engage in a conversation. You take the time pressure off uh, and you discuss and hey, it's a career move. So the candidate gets the opportunity. And I tell candidates, we're going to have a conversation to see if we can achieve a win-win hiring outcome. It's going to take a little more time. But let's just engage in a conversation. And most candidates, of course, makes logical sense. But you have to know the job to have credibility with the candidate. So that's where taking the intake meeting and I say, hey, here's, here's the job, Pete. We're looking for someone who can do A, B, and C. And here's the situation. Here's the resource. Oh, you really know what you're talking about. So recruiters who don't know the job and just source active candidates who are they find either through a job posting or an email, it's just pure transactional and pure blind luck if they hire a good person. And then pure blind luck if the person's going to be there a year from now. Mm-hmm. So I, I get what you're saying with regard to, hey, find those semifinalists. It is going to take a little bit of more work up front, but it's good news is we don't need to look at hundreds of resumes. We can look at a handful, or what do you think, five, 10, 
Maybe what we're talking about here, roughly? Actually, maybe 12 to 15, but you got to be persistent to talk to everybody because most most candidates don't think you're different. So you got to kind of prove that through the process of pestering. That feels a lot better as a candidate in terms of, oh, cool. So at worst, I've got 14 contenders uh, clamoring for this opportunity as opposed to hundreds. Okay. Well, yeah, Lou, uh, uh, that's worth 10 minutes for me to just see what you're thinking and then maybe a lot more. Sure. You just start to 10 minutes. Okay. Well, and so then can we hear about how do you, on the recruiting side, go about finding these people and confirming that they got the performance qualification, that they can do it and that they're in the top half, third or fourth? Well, first off, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. A lot of my books and interviewing, we, we train hiring managers on the whole process, the finding the work, finding candidates, interviewing candidates and closing the deal and even the onboarding process. But from an interviewing standpoint, so if I was going to call you up and say, hey, Pete, let's just have a conversation. And I said, Pete, part of this assessment is to make sure this job represents a career move. And to be a career move, it has to give you at least a 30% increase. 30%, you say? I said, well, yeah, but it's not money. 30% is a combination of job stretch, meaning a bigger job, faster growth, a job with more impact, and more satisfying work. And that's a complicated decision to make, but that's what I want to go through. So let me just review your background in general, see if there's a fit, and if so, we can get serious. So during that process, I dig deep into the candidate's accomplishments to see if they're comparable and see if the 30% opportunity exists. And I said, Pete, this is, looks like it could be there. A bigger team, faster growth. This is the kind of work you like to do. Let me get the hiring manager engaged in this process and we'll move forward. But I also say this from a closing standpoint. I say, Pete, if you're really the candidate and you're going to get an offer two or three weeks from now, you know, it's a prob- high probability you'll get one, you know, 20, 30% possible. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to say, forget the money. Forget all the day one stuff. Do you really want this job? And if you do, tell me why. And if you can't describe that 30% in your own words, because that's the information you have to get over the interviewing process, I'm going to suggest you don't take the offer, even if it pays the most. Because that will not drive your satisfaction and growth and lead to a win-win hiring outcome. So it's incumbent upon you, the candidate, to get that information and is incumbent upon the hiring manager and the hiring company to give you that information. And if there's a clash there, fine, don't move forward. So that's kind of how all the pieces tie together. As we as we have this conversation, Lou, it, it's just I, I I keep putting myself in the candidate's shoes and thinking, yes, I like that. Okay, that's distinctive. And thirty percent, that just feels right in the gut in terms of hey, if it's an eight percent bump, is it really worth all the time and effort and and hassle and change and disruption <laughs> to your life and routines to to go chasing after it? I don't know. But thirty percent is like, well, yeah, that is. But again, it's non-monetary. You know, money right. will be on top of that. But the idea is that if you, you really get 30%, the, the compensation will increase at the same rate uh, year after year. So if you look at, hey, what's your compensation a year or two from now, it's going to blow if you really get the non-monetary increase. Uh, your compensation will be there a year or two from now, just like this fellow, John. He called me up and said, you know, his compensation was far greater. Title was far greater because we put him on a better career path. Mm-hmm. And then, and how do you go about confirming whether, in fact, a candidate is in that top half, third, or fourth? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, basically, and I, I just, I'm doing a training session, so I had to do some record. I'm doing some recording of some uh, online training uh, on uh, Friday. No, excuse me, Thursday. So I said one thing that I look for is a dozen techniques. One of them is what kind of recognition did you get for that project? 
But one thing from a technical standpoint, which is pretty interesting, I call it the Sherlock Holmes deductive technique, is good candidates are always assigned stretch projects early in their career. Hey, Pete, when you took on that job, what kind of projects did you get assigned? Now, if you were assigned after three months menial work or average work consistent with your uh, peer group, yeah, you're probably an okay person. But if you were starting to give stretch assignments, assigned to more important teams, those teams started recognizing you and asked you to be on other teams, there's a lot of evidence that you can use to determine if someone's a high achiever. The point is too many interviewers and hiring managers in particular judge the person and that person's raw technical insight and using a lot of uh, subjective material. A smart person should do this. Yeah, but that's not, I'm I'm not technical competent in any of the jobs. But I'm a great technical interviewer because I looked at what other people thought of that per- that candidate. There's, I mean, if you're a good person, you get awards. You get assigned. If you're a sales rep, you get assigned tougher clients. If you get a, if you're an accountant at a big accounting firm, they don't. The partners in the job don't give you menial accounts. They give you important accounts and they give you exposure to important people. Mm-hmm. If you're a marketing person, you get assigned bigger projects. And the result of being successful, you get assigned even bigger projects, more important product lines that are involved in the company. So you look for those kinds of things that what would likely happen if this person was really good doing that work in that company? And you start picking up the evidence. Uh, they got a president's award. They got a nice letter. They got a bonus. They got a promotion more rapidly. So it's those kinds of obvious things when you think about it. So of course, that's what would happen. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do that. You just got to think logically of, uh, hey, don't you make the personal judgment. Let other people have made the judgment about that person. And that person has made the judgment about him or herself. So look for that kind of evidence that would be indicative of what a high achiever does. What well, Lou, high- I'm just going to put you on the spot and make it a little challenging. I think that it's funny that what you say, that sounds like, but of course we should all do that. And yet we don't. <laughs> and what's common sense is often not common practice. I'm curious about if we're hiring someone from an organization who's kind of processes and meritocracy is just kind of broken. <laughs> and and these deductive clues we'd like to lean on as Sherlock Holmes are not uh, giving us the indicators we'd like. What are some other sources you'd use? Well, it depends. Maybe the candidate's not any good. <laughs> I mean, that's I that's a one possibility. I, I guess I was just looking for what are some extra indicators or clever approaches that we can get that validation, that check mark. Yeah, I don't know that there's clever approach. I mean, I think I, I mean, I'm pretty deductive. I mean, it's, and I don't want to say deductive in any kind of intellectual sense. I just look for evidence. If I don't find the evidence, I pass. I can't afford to risk. Okay, fair enough. When I ask the person why you change jobs, and if they always change jobs for short-term reasons. That, to me, is the indicator the person is not really focused on career-oriented, uh, a career-oriented focused person. So, I mean, there are things you can look at that would get you some insight and validate that the person's really okay, an okay person, but not a high achiever. High achievers want to aggress. They self-develop. They work hard. They, uh, they do get assigned projects. And even if once or twice it was a screw-up, so be it. That's fine. So there is evidence that you can look for. Okay, sure thing. Well, so let's say we got our semifinalists, and then here we are in the interview phase. Can you can you help us think through on both sides? What are some top do's and don'ts? Well, one the thing to me, over the years, I developed what I call the hiring formula for success, and the hiring formula for success says it's how you actually evaluate candidates. It's ability to do the work in relationship to fit drives motivation. And because motivation is so important, it's squared. So the do's and don'ts are, hey, if you want to achieve a win-win hiring outcome and hire someone in the top uh, half, 
they better be motivated to do the work you want in the context of your job, the fit factors. Of that formula, ability to do the work, which is a combination of hard skills and soft skills, uh, but most people only measure the technical skills. They ignore the soft skills, organization, planning, uh, team collaboration, understanding. They just focus on the hard skills. But if you get at the hard and soft skills, the next one is the fit factors. Fit with the job. Does the candidate really want to do that work? Fit with the hiring manager's style. Certain In my mind, I was pretty independent. And I had a hiring manager who, the group president whom I work for, was a micromanager. I said, don't fire me if I don't do the work. Just leave me alone. There's other people who are more want a manager and uh, subordinate who align better on what they need. So one fit factor is the uh, managerial fit. Another fit factor is the culture of the company. Another one is the pace of the organization. Another one is the sophistication of the organization. But those context issues are critical. I mean, you can have a lot of competent people, but if they don't fit the fit factors and are not motivated to do the work, they'll underperform. So that starts getting pretty complicated. But the way we do that, we, we, we break the interview down in different pieces. We dig into the candidate's accomplishments, and then we group around a formula around that hiring formula to make sure that we have all the components measured accurately. So that's the secret sauce of how you find candidates who are going to excel in that circumstance. And with ignoring the fit factors, you're, uh, it's, again, problematic if you'll achieve a one-to-one hiring outcome. Mm-hmm. And you said motivation is squared? Yeah, uh, ability to do the work in relation to fit times motivation squared. I mean, if mm-hmm. you just if you just kind of go through the basics of it, you'll get some done. But if you're motivated to do the work, you'll get a lot more done. And and in the course of an interview, how do we assess whether one is in fact motivated, or well, on the, the flip side, it, as a candidate, to reveal that you are motivated? <laughs> yeah, and the motivation to do the work, not get the work, uh, and that's that's a critical step here in this process. Yeah, how do I assess whether uh, one a candidate has motivation or convey that uh, I am motivated as a candidate? You know, it's funny. I remember I, I had a friend who was really into a consulting opportunity, and then he got some feedback from his interviewer. It's like, you know, you just didn't really seem into it. And he's like, I am very into it. This is my number one company that I really want to work for, but somehow it didn't get conveyed. So how do we convey it? How do we check for it? Well, convey. See, that's the issue. The fact that someone is quiet and low-key has nothing to do with motivation to do the work. Unfortunately, candidates or hiring manager and interviewers judge you by how motivated you are there during the interview and how extroverted you are. Totally inappropriate. The way I do it is I dig deep in the candidate's accomplishments and ask many questions. Hey, what'd you do in this accomplishment? Where'd you take the initiative? Where'd you go the extra mile? And I ask that constantly as part of different accomplishments. So I start seeing a pattern of the types of work that naturally motivates the person to excel. That's how I get at it. And I see this pattern of, hey, this person always goes out of his or her way to build the team, always takes these architectural design issues, always does this without prompting. Very few people do everything without prompting all the time. Uh, But I start seeing this (laughs) pattern of activity. Now, how does a candidate do that? And I, I don't want candidates, and I tell candidates, me as a recruiter, unfortunately, that's my technique is not universal. I tell candidates, I don't care if you're a good interviewer. I care if you're a good performer. I'll try to clean you up to make you the best interviewer possible, but I'm going to only represent you if I think you're good. And then I, we have a course, and you can look on winwinhiring.com. It's how to prep for an interview, where I tell candidates how to 
do the best job they can of presenting themselves for a specific job. And the way to do that is if you feel you're being superficially assessed, I say candidates time out very quickly and say, would you mind telling me some of the major accomplishments related to this job? Because uh, I'd like to give you examples of work that I've done that are most comparable. <laughs> Let me do your job for you, interviewer. <laughs> it's, it's funny and, and, and I'm laughing because it's, it's kind of... It's sad, but sometimes necessary. Like as candidate, it's like, let me do your job for you, interviewer. What, I think what you want yeah, to know is the following. The it is. But, yeah. but at least the fact that you just asked that question indicates that you're proactive. Even if you ask it in a, a low-keyed way. Oh, that's a pretty good question. What are the resources for that job? How? What's the time frame for that job? And you start asking these questions that say, wow, this person, even the quality of your questions and proactively asking them, brand you as, hey, this person's pretty aggressive. Your answers are the other part. Oh, I did some work that's comparable. And what did you say the biggest problem was in that? You said that design issue to build the, the tool to do A, B, and C. Well, let me give you some examples of work that I've done related to that. So the idea is find out what the work is and proactively ask about it. Even if you ask it in a low-key manner, It'll wow, this person's really competent, really knows what he or she's talking about. So I think those are the issues. If you just wait, assume that you're going to be assessed accurately, the chance of that is five to one against. You will be judged on personality traits and your depth of hard skills. Mm -hmm. and, and I like that that question for getting after motivation is like, uh, where have you gone the extra mile here? Where have you gone the extra mile there? Because you'll you'll surface, I imagine, some patterns. And the, and hopefully the answer is not, uh, oh, uh, um, no, I don't know. <laughs> be, um, and, and that really gets you thinking as I reflect, as, as I ask myself that question, different endeavors, like where have I gone the extra mile? It really does reveal, oh yeah, because that's where I was motivated. And where have I not gone the extra mile? I was like, oh, that's where I didn't care. And I did the minimum I had to, to, you know, comply with the law or, <laughs> you know, whatever, um, you know, needs, needs compliance rather than my proactive vigor. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, well, tell us, Lou, any other um, top tips you would suggest? I think let's give the candidates a little bit more love in terms of if we want to stand out, to become found, to, to dazzle our, our, prospective employers. What are your top tips on that side? Well, first off, my big tip is do not, do not, do not apply for a job directly. Chances, 3% you'll get interviewed, 1% you'll get hired. So just a waste of time. On the other hand, if you see a job that you like, I would find out, hey, who, is there any way I can get a referral into that specific job? That would be great. And it could be a second or third degree connection, but you tried to See if you can do it. Okay, who's what's this company? Do I know anybody? Do anybody on my school? Um, you start looking on LinkedIn. And the beauty of LinkedIn, it's a network of 700 million people, not a database of 700 million people. And I don't think recruiters or candidates take advantage of that. So now let's assume that's probably going to happen, that you'll know somebody for that job 10 to 20%, depending. I mean, it's not going to be high, but you never know. Uh, if you've got a if you got a professional background working in an accounting firm or bigger company, you might be able to get some connection. On the other hand, fifty to seventy percent of the time, you'll be able to find out who the vice president is for that department or director for that department, even if it's not over that specific job. And I remember talking to this fellow. This had to be five or six years ago now, maybe ten years, but he was Italian. He had his MBA from some school in Milan. 
He wanted to work for a telecommunications company in Europe. And he named the top three or four. I want to work a job here. How would I get it? I said, well, it's easy enough to find a VP of marketing, any of those jobs. Why don't you do a little MBA-like case study, putting each of their telecommunications systems, if that's the area you want, on some kind of little competitive matrix, company A, company B, company C, company D, and some of the key features by product line. So this person was going to be, want to be a product marketing person. I said, and just do a little summary with one or two pages, and then send that off to uh, the VP and say, a VP market, say, I'd like to work in product marketing, and this is what I've done, and I've found some key weaknesses in some of your products, and I'd like to have a chance to chat with you about it. He said, a good idea. And he called me up once or twice over the next two weeks and said, I'm just starting to send out emails, and I think I've got one interview already. I hadn't heard from him again for like six months. Hey, Lou, I got that job at that one company. So there are ways you can find the names of people, do a mini consulting project, and just arrange to have a conversation and say, hey, I'd like to do this. On LinkedIn, there's an article I call 15 Ways to Hack a Job. So if you look up Lou Adler, Hack a Job on LinkedIn, you'll see an article, and it talks about using the back door to get the interview, to get to the top of the resume heap. And if you want to apply, I would, unless you're a world-class person with exactly the skills, uh, it's a low-probability event. I would rather spend five or you know more time with fewer postings rather than applying to hundreds of postings. Same thing with can don't don't spend a lot of times with hundreds of candidates. Get to the right candidates and spend more time with them for a candidate. Spend uh, time on jobs you want, and if you put some effort into it, uh, you will get a conversation. Do you think that most people spend too much time fine tuning their resumes and LinkedIn profiles, and they could spend that time better elsewhere? Or, or what's your take there? That's a good question. Now, I would say the thing is, and I do look at resumes. So I guess here, here would be the advice. And this was like 30 years ago, I had a, a training for candidates. I don't know why I did it. I figured I just wanted to train candidates on how to get a job. So this was pre-internet, uh, pre-job boards too. So it had to be 1990-ish. And I said, take your resume. And I had everyone bring a resume. And I said, give it to somebody whom you don't know. And I said, turn it over and give it to somebody whom you don't know. Then I said, I'm going to give everybody 30 seconds to look at that resume. Or maybe it was in 15 or 20 seconds. I said, when I turn the clock on, I want to say, turn the resume over and just circle the things that stand out. Maybe it was 10 or 15 seconds. And then turn it back over and give it back to the person who you got it from. So I then said, look at the candidates and said, now look at what's circled. Is that enough to get someone to read the resume because you only got five or 10 seconds or 15 seconds where somebody sees your resume and decides to read it. So now I take that same advice and a lot of people had their name in big, bold letters, their address in big, bold letters, the title of a summary in big, bold letters. I said, is that going to get someone to read your resume? Uh, so now you take that same advice of, hey, you got 10 or 15 seconds. Recruiters only get 10 or 15 seconds per name, maybe five or six. They got the whole list some machine is going to score it in priority order. Let's assume you get to the top of the list. What's going to stand out? It's that first line, which is usually uh, that description. So if that description turns out, so that's what I do is I look at, the, I don't even look at the person's name. I just look at the title they give themselves, expert in uh, Java developing something or other. If it's kind of cool and interesting, I, I'll put, oh, that's kind of interesting. Guy person's pretty clever. Highlight something. Coaching thousands of people on how to do A, B, and C. Oh, that's Pretty cool. I've got to look at that. So I would say that's probably the most important thing is the first line below your name on LinkedIn. I don't exactly know how it turns out to look at, but 
it must, I just don't remember how it does. But I guess I don't know if anybody can just look at LinkedIn and look what it looks like. But I, to me, that would be the thing. And then I'd highlight one or two major accomplishments and probably the academics or the track record of the somehow show the promotions uh, very quickly. It says, hey, this is achiever. Some, show some of those achiever terms quickly and some of the projects a person's worked on. All right. Well, uh, how about a favorite quote? Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is my favorite author of all time. And he, you know, he came up, and this is 30 years ago, uh, seven habits that it seemed like exceptional people all have. One of them was begin with the end in mind, think win-win, and seek first to understand before you're understood. So I'd say those three are critical. Think win-win, seek first to understand to be understood, and then uh, begin with the end in mind. But if you think about the comment I made, Pete, about how do you uh, control the interview if you're a candidate, it's don't start asking questions. Begin with the end in mind. Hey, Pete, what do you want done in this job? What will success look like? And I'd like to give you some examples of work that I've done. That is proactive enough to force the interviewer to ask, tell you, and they'll be impressed by the fact you asked that kind of question. You have to give a decent answer, too, because if you come up, but nonetheless, uh, you're in the game if you ask the question. So you're beginning with the end. Why answer questions that aren't relevant? Why not answer questions that are related to the real job? So force the person to do it. I use those quotes a lot and refer to Stephen Covey a lot. So maybe that is my favorite quote. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? And I went to a number of companies that process resumes. They're called applicant tracking systems. And I validated the number. And one company uh, had all their users there. And they said, over the last five years since we've been in business, we process 75 million resumes. And of that, 750,000 people got jobs. And everybody clapped. (laughs) And I said to myself, that's 1%. So they're spending 99% of all the people applied did not get a job. I then ultimately asked, and that's where I got, the likelihood of applying is a random chance. And then I validated that with two other applicant tracking system companies that weren't as big as that one. But, you know, in 30, 40 resume, it was about 1% of people who apply get a job. 3 to 4% get interviewed. Well, then you say, well, where do these other 96% of the jobs get filled? And most of it's referrals or internal promotions or through a trusted recruiter or from a second degree connection. So then that's a lot of that stuff evolves on, you just look at the statistics, it says, hey, the way to get a job is to uh, do your own due diligence. Don't assume that an app or an, a posting on Indeed or a posting on ZipRecruiter is gonna get it, get you that uh, great opportunity and, doing, and applying to hundreds and hundreds of jobs a week. That's not work, that's a waste of time. And a favorite book? Oh, it definitely would be Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Well, for me, the tool is LinkedIn. When I was a recruiter, I could find anybody on LinkedIn in 24 hours. It was easy. Uh, maybe it, no, there's another tool that I would actually say, I don't know if you know this, it's called a phone. Mm-hmm. You have to talk to people. Uh, and I think uh, too many people try to make it impersonal, whether you're on the company side or the candidate side. Now, hiring is a serious personal business and it's an important decision. And if you try to make it technical, role, you're going to be unsuccessful. You try to make it a personal relationship, you'll be very successful. That's why I say spend, combine high tech with high touch. Don't just rely exclusively on high tech to make hiring, important hiring decisions. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular nugget that you share that people quote back to you often or that you're known for? Yeah, define the job or 
It's what people do with what they have, not what they have that makes them successful. It's what people do with what they have, not what they have that makes them successful. So during the course of the interview, I understand what do you have in terms of skills and experiences and opportunities and what have you accomplished with those? And I'm looking for people who have accomplished more with less. And that really reveals a lot about that person's capability. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would go to uh, winwinhiring.com or go to winwinhiring.com. It's a training course, online training course. But I'd also go to Amazon and search uh, Hire With Your Head. Book just came out, fourth edition from Wiley. Uh, whether you're a candidate or a hiring manager or a recruiter, you'll find it invaluable in terms of planning your life and your career. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, to be awesome, yeah. He said, uh, don't make excuses. <laughs> Get it done. It doesn't matter if you committed to do it. Don't blame others. Just do it. Uh, and I see that all the time. The one thing I hate is people who make excuses. I like people who get the job done and getting it done on time, even if it's not perfect, is more important than saying and making excuses of why you didn't make it perfect. Get it done in some level so people can use it. Meet your deadlines. Don't make excuses. Get it done. That would be my motto for uh, being awesome at your job. All right, Lou, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck and fun and all the ways are getting it done. Great. Thank you, Pete. Nice chatting with you. I love what Lou had to say about the short-term versus long-term considerations. Very tempting to go short-term when it's right in front of you, as well as the 30% bump. I don't know why that number, in a way, it seems somewhat arbitrary, but in other ways, it seems perfect in terms of, yeah, that's kind of what we should be after if we're going to make a move. So get after it, and not just monetarily, but in terms of the things that really matter for you and your job happiness. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP722. Hope to catch it next time. We will be off for Thanksgiving if you're listening really fresh but then back on the Monday. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody, whether you're in the U.S. and you're celebrating or you're in some other location that does not have this holiday. I am thankful for you and listening and hope you have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.